this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the College Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And Kirk, it is good to be back in studio with you again. Sometimes, well, most of the time, I am calling in by Skype, but it's good to be back live in the studio in Ocean City at WIBG, especially because we have been surrounded by a bunch of guys in uniform. I don't know if these are cops or are they paramedics. Who are you guys? Are these college students? What are you guys? (laughs) Oh, you have to talk. This Don't is a radio talk show. At once, All of you at once. Cubs. Cub yeah. Scouts. You guys are Cub Scouts, not Boy Scouts. Okay, and what rank are you? Tiger Cubs. Tiger Cubs. All right. So that's the really big guys. The Tiger Cubs are the ones who have done all kinds of camping and stuff. No. No. What? Are you just starting out? Just starting out. Well, why are you here? So we can get our go-see-it badge for oh. the radio station. Oh, so you guys get to go to places and see things like radio stations? What else have you seen? Anything else? Have you seen a hospital? Do you go to hospitals? No. How about fire station? Have you seen a fire station? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you have? Okay, cool. And so what do you get for this? Do you get a badge or you get a belt loop or what? A bead. A bead. And where where does the bead go? Someplace on your uniform? Yeah. Cool. All right. Tell me your names. Let's. I'll point at you. You tell me your name. Warren. Chica. Luke. Cole. Joey. Great. Hey, guys. That was great. You guys sounded really good. You think you might like to be a radio person in the future? And everybody's shaking their heads. No. And that's good because you know that you didn't know that nobody can hear you shake your heads. So so it's good that you're not going into radio. Luke, step forward. Go to, right to the microphone. What are you going to be when you grow up? Do you know? What does your mom want you to be when you grow up? I don't know. You don't know? Did you ask her? She wants him to be financially independent. There you go. Does she want you to be rich? Yeah. She does? <laughs> How are you going to get rich? Uh, by doing a job. By doing a job. Okay, cool. All right. When you figure out what job makes you rich, you let me know, okay? And we'll put it on the air. Yeah, I'd like to know that myself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, boys. Anybody else want to tell anybody anything? Do you do you have somebody listening that might want you want to say hi to? No? Any of you guys have a girlfriend? No. 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 Heck, no. Forget that noise. All right, guys. Thank you. Oh, and tell us what pack you're from. Nice and loud. Pack 58. Great. And where's Pack 58 located? What town? 
Hamilton. Hamilton. And what state is Hamilton in? New Jersey. New Jersey. Very good. Okay, took a while to think about that one, right? That's good. I, I hear somebody's Cub Master or somebody uh, cluing you in, too, but that's all right. So, oh, I, did I ask you how old you are? How old are you guys? Seven. Seven? Seven. Is everybody, somebody six? Who's eight? Seven. Anybody eight? No? Okay. All right. So you're just a few years younger than me. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for coming in. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Say bye to everybody. Bye. Bye. Okay, great. Bye. See you guys. Thank you. You bet. All right. We do that once a year. We have had uh, kids from Pac-58 in to take a look at a radio station and see what it's all like, so we uh, have great fun with them. Is this how Howdy Doody used to feel with the peanut gallery? Uh, Apparently, yeah. And uh, I'm not even going to ask how old you have to be to know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) A lot older than these kids. Uh, Older than me, even. Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, Let's do our quote of the week before we bring our guest on, and I guess we'll tell people that we're going to be talking about the problem of suffering and why should we care about it? Why is there evil and why do we care about it? With a guest, Joel Furches, coming up in just a minute, but let's do our quote of the week. This is from Apologetics 315 again, and the quote is from Tim Keller on doubt. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And that is from Tim Keller, author of The Reason for God, highly recommended book. Well, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. Our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, where you can find archived shows. If you like podcasts, as I do, you can find us on iTunes or on Double Twist. And do check out ratiochristi.org, the mother organization. And speaking of Ratio Christi, we will bring on our guest, Joel Furches. Joel is a Ratio Christi director at Towson University in Maryland. Joel, welcome back to Evidence for Faith. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Joel, you were on maybe six months ago, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I responded to a question I believe you posted on uh, Ratio Christi's Facebook page, and uh, I wrote a bit of a paper for it, and I think I uh, went over that with you guys. Yeah. Well, um, did I pronounce Towson right? Yes, uh, Towson. Say it again. Towson. 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 Okay. Towson. All right. I, I, you know, I've seen advertisements. I, they um, they seem to be putting a lot of advertisements out, at least in the South Jersey area. That's a little surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. I, I thought it, but uh, when I saw the advertisement, I thought of you. So how is the Ratio Christi chapter going down there? Uh, <laughs> it really 
really isn't. I've had uh, roadblock after roadblock in getting in there. Um, I've talked to a number of the other Christian organizations on campus to try to get the student interest up. And what I've uh, discovered or what I've faced with that is that they're really not interested in uh, helping me out. They, uh, they see me as a competitor that might steal some of their students away. Ah, that's tough. That is very tough, yeah. But I'm still trying to promote it and get enough students interested that we can get that chapter up and running. So. All right. Well, uh, maybe uh, somebody listening in the area might be able to help out. So that is uh, for our listeners in Maryland. Now, Joel, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know that you uh, write on apologetics topics, and you write for Examiner.com and for Bible Translation Magazine. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, uh, let me think. I, I guess uh, I, I grew up in a Christian home. And so I didn't go through the sort of crisis of faith that a lot of people do when they're, you know, searching for something to believe in. I've kind of always been a Christian as far back as I can remember. But I did go to college at a Christian school, and much to my surprise, when I was taking the Bible courses and the science courses there, they were very much against any kind of uh, traditional belief in the Bible or anything. Um, My first Bible class he spent the entire time talking to us about how these were just ancient legends that were put together that the Jews kind of adopted from the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is a supposedly Christian school, and he's just terror- ripping the Bible apart. Do you want to and name the school? <laughs> uh, it's Milligan College in Tennessee. Okay. Um, and at the time, I mean, having grown up in the Church and having grown up, you know, a Christian, I didn't have any answers for what they were saying, and it was com- somewhat distressing to me because what they were not doing was encouraging me to be a Christian. Um, my entire thought is, if this is what you believe, in what sense are you a Christian? Um, and it wasn't, and I guess that was what inspired me to look for these answers and to really uh, delve into apologetics, and it's been kind of a passion of mine ever since. Now, was this just one or two professors, or was this pretty much the tenor of the entire institution? Well, I wasn't a Bible major. I wasn't majoring in any sort of ministry course, so I only took a, a very few Bible courses. Um, but I know that the science department definitely was uh, very much sold on the uh, idea of uh, classic uh, Darwinian evolution and uh, from the science courses I took. And then the Bible courses I did take were uh, all higher criticism, um, sort of low Christology. Right, just as a given, not even challenging higher criticism? No, they adopted it. That's, that's what they taught us. As a matter of fact, the impression I got was that they were bringing in these students that they knew had grown up in a more uh, fundamental Christian environment, and they were trying to teach them what the Bible was really about. Wow, that's uh, very disappointing, but it's a word to the wise for those parents who are listening and are considering Christian colleges for their students that maybe they better prep them a little bit or not go at all. I'm kind of surprised to hear that about a school in Tennessee, because I thought they were generally pretty conservative down that way. Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing the difference between Maryland, which is a uh, fairly uh, liberal state, and uh, Tennessee. Like, I go down there, and I can walk into a, um, say, a Walmart, and they'll be playing Christian music on the stereo there. Wow. Um, you know, they've still got the blue laws enacted in, in some counties down there. So it's it's amazing just how much lip service they pay to uh, Christianity down there. But it's of the liberal variety? 
Well, no, I wouldn't say that the state itself is liberal. I, I, that was that one school. I'm mm. not really sure. I, I mean, the, the thing is, you can't chuck a rock down there without hitting a church on some corner, and you can find every stripe of Christianity and, and heresy down there, depending on which church you go to. I mean, you've got the name and it, claim it, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel being preached in one church, and sort of a universalism faith being preached in the next one down. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's a big mix down there. Everybody claims to be a Christian, but it, you have to dig to find out what that means to them. Mm. Well, Joel, let's jump into the topic for today. We're going to be talking about the problem of suffering, or it's sometimes called the problem of pain, and it's something that we have talked about in the past on the show. It is a common argument made by atheists against the idea of the existence of God, but there was an interesting twist on this whole topic that you have brought out in a paper that you published online called Why Is There Suffering and Why Should We Care? And it's a really great paper. This is a really kind of an interesting twist. So why don't you, Joel, can you just, uh, I guess, tell people what is the argument from suffering uh, to begin with, and then we'll jump into the twist on it. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the the classic argument from suffering is that if uh, is that if God is all powerful and God is all good, then God would desire a world without evil. And if He's all powerful, He would have the ability to create a world without evil. So since evil exists, God is either not all good, He's not all powerful, or He does not exist. So this is one of the few arguments that actually can be made on the behalf of atheism. Uh, some atheists don't put themselves in a position where they need to give any evidence. But if they did, this is one of the likely ones that comes up. So I guess that's why you write that this is a persistent argument, and it, and it surely is. But haven't there already been good answers given by Christian theologians in response to this argument? Well, yes, uh, absolutely. But I think that a lot of the problems with that is that there's nothing you can tell a person who's undergone extensive personal tragedy in an academic fashion that makes that any better for the person. I mean, it's an emotional argument, and it impacts people on the emotional level. Mm. So theological and academic papers that are written on the subject are never quite up to the task of, of you know, healing those hurts and all. So this is the kind of thing that it's a good argument, so atheists use it, even though intellectually, academically, theologically, it's been well answered. Still, it's very useful emotionally, and I guess if you're a person of faith and you have suffered some tragedy in your life, it's something that you would kind of automatically think about. So it comes home personally for people uh, many times, right? The, the argument has a lot of power because of its it's so emotionally charged. Like um, Joel said, even if you have a good academic and intellectual answer to this, if you're going through suffering, it's hard. Even you know you're in. It's a difficult place to be to deal with with that, right? So what are yeah, some? And of I the... think C.S. Lewis in, his, in the problem of pain probably had the best mixture of the academic and the personal because he had gone through the personal tragedy and he was expressing his own pain as he was answering those questions. 
Well, just as uh, before, again, before we get into this kind of twist that an atheist has brought to this argument, um, what are some of the standard answers or academic answers that uh, people will give for that apparently challenging argument that God doesn't exist because there is suffering in the world? Oh, I mean, free will is always the one that's brought up first. That mm-hmm. you know, in order for the work for uh, human beings to err. Uh, if God is a loving God, then the creatures that he creates will have the ability to freely choose for or against him. And, of course, choices have consequences. So the suffering is a consequence of free choices that are made by God's creatures. Now, that doesn't in any way encompass all of the problems of suffering, but that's usually the very first argument that uh, people will jump to when addressing that question. It's right. a good place to start, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, but... I interact with uh, atheist material quite a bit, and it's uh, it's always uncomfortable to do. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think I've ever had more crystallization of my own thoughts on theology and and more profound thoughts uh, about um, my beliefs than when I've had to answer atheistic challenges to it. And I think that's necessary if you're going to grow in your beliefs to face the up to the challenges to have. At any rate. Um, the problem of suffering is always the one that they're going to jump to, and no matter what answer you give, they'll always bring up another challenge to it. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with our guest, Joel Furches, who is the director of Rosho Christi at Towson University in Maryland and is an apologist who does freelance writing at examiner.com and Bible Translation magazine. We're talking about the problem of suffering, and we've gone over the basic argument uh, that God can't exist if there is suffering, and the basic answer that is usually given about free will. So, Joel, you've written this article, Why Is There Suffering and Why Should We Care?, based on atheist Stephen Meitzen's work. So let's talk about him now. Who is Stephen, if I'm saying it right, Meitzen? Uh, I honestly haven't done a lot of research in the background. Of him. I first heard about his paper on an atheist podcast that I follow called Reasonable Doubt. And uh, they brought up this paper and they sort of summarized the argument there. Um, I thought it was interesting, so I looked up the paper online and then I, uh, you know, I proceeded to read it and write my response to it. So I'm not really sure, other than the fact that he is an atheist, and the paper was written in a semi-academic fashion where it had like the um, little summary that shows what the paper is going to be about and had footnotes and it made academic references. So I'm assuming he uh, published it for a journal of some sort. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Reasonable Doubts is one of the atheist podcasts that I will occasionally listen to. It's a, they try to be a little bit more even handed. I think it's not like so many of them, uh, just a bunch of invectives and, uh, profanities. Well, give us a gist then of what this n- new kind of take on the argument is all about. Right. Um, Nathan wrote a paper called Atheism and the Basis of Morality. And in that paper, he stated that on uh, theism, I guess he was talking about classical Christianity specifically, um, it is immoral to help people who are suffering. Now, in the paper, he only ever referenced a child suffering, so I'm going to have to restrict my comments to that. He said that if a child is suffering, 
and God is good, that that suffering will ultimately be for the net benefit of that child. Uh, and he used the example of uh, somebody getting a vaccine shot in the arm. There's pain to begin with, but it has a, a benefit for them later down the road. He said that any alternative, if the child's suffering for somebody else's benefit, then that is unjust and unfair to the child. Um, if the child is suffering for no reason, then it's purposeless, and you know that would not match up with God's good nature. Um, and if the child is rewarded down the road for the suffering, uh, but the, that would still make the suffering purposeless, then it's kind of like beating your child and then giving them a sucker to make up for it. It doesn't really match up with God's goodness. So given the premise that suffering must ultimately be for the net benefit of the sufferer, if you are to then help that person relieve their suffering, you're robbing them of the net benefit that they would have down the road. That is definitely a new take on this argument. This, this, I, I printed your paper out this afternoon and I've been reading it and, uh, I'm reading through this and I'm thinking this, I gotta give this guy points for originality because I've never heard the argument, uh, couched this way before. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's very interesting because there's nobody more obsessed with, uh, religion than atheists are and you'll hear them come up with unique arguments like this all the time. And it's actually, it's actually somewhat fun and challenging to look at these arguments because you've got to see whether Christianity stands or falls when viewed from every different angle, and they're very good at finding creative angles and loopholes. That's for sure. Now, Joel, my first uh, reaction looking over the premises that this atheist puts forth, it says, to make a child suffer for no reason is immoral. Now, at face value, that seems obviously true, but it's interesting that he uses the word make. Um, I don't think that would be the way that a Christian would um, see God as acting in someone's life. Uh, it might be better to say allow, right? Is it Does God well, well, yeah, make I children suffer? Or does he al- interesting that you should bring that out because in all of the examples that he gives, um, he's talking about a child and then the person who is responsible for the child. And uh, in most of those instances, he'd have the person who is responsible for the child, for instance, beating the child to show people that child abuse is wrong or something like that. So, yeah, in in most of the instances he cites, he brings it out on the emotional level where you're responsible for this child and you either directly harm the child or you allow the child to be harmed and you just stand back. Right. So I think we have to clarify that question, whether God makes people suffer or he allows suffering. That would be... Um, it's two very different things. Right. Well, and also absolutely. I find it interesting that uh, this statement that uh, um, he makes children suffer, that that's immoral. I'm wondering what what is he basing his standard of moral and immoral on here? <laughs> Well, absolutely, and and that's a, a big problem that I find again and again when interacting with these atheist arguments is that they assume a standard of morality, but they don't bother to tell you where they're getting their standard or what it's about. Right. I, I assume that if you ask them that, they would uh, reference back to some kind of philosophy, uh, as they often do in arguments specifically about morality, but um, they don't bother to bring that up in the argument, and Stephen Mason did either. 
Right. Especially it's interesting. In a paper titled Atheism and the Basis for Morality, he never gives an atheist basis for morality. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and, and the thing that always gets me is if you really pursue this line of thought, and uh, we're assuming that um, this Stephen Meitzen, that he probably believes in Darwinian evolution, that if if that's true and there is no God, then – uh, where is he getting this standard of something being immoral from? It, it seems to me like if he believes that, then there really is no moral or immoral. There's just what is and what isn't. Yeah, and that's that's typically what's uh, given them. Now, in the instances that I've seen atheists try to justify morality, it's typically something along the lines of it is to everyone's benefit to extend and... Um, and to advance the human race. Uh, therefore, if you do to some, something to someone that is neither uh, to their benefit or the benefit of the human race, then that's immoral. And again, if you allow something to happen to a person when you have the option of stopping it, um, then that would be immoral. But that's a very short-sighted idea of morality because, uh, as I pointed out in my response, at some point that person's going to die. So anything that you've done for them has at most made their life what life they had more comfortable but then they die and they cease to be so uh and at some point the human race is going to die out and at some point the universe is going to die out so i mean at some point down the road nothing you do good or bad really matters yeah couldn't you if you pursue that line of argument couldn't you argue that well you know aren't wouldn't we be doing people a favor by killing them earlier so that their suffering is over earlier <laughs> absolutely and uh, i guess their response would be it depends on their preference do they prefer non-existence or existence if they prefer non-existence then it would absolutely be moral and their existence which is probably why most of these people might be in favor of things like euthanasia right yeah one of the major forms of ethical thinking is utilitarianism. When you don't have a biblical worldview to choose from, this is one of the common philosophies that's used to determine right and wrong. And in some forms of utilitarianism, they wouldn't even agree with this second premise to make a child suffer for the benefit of others is unfair. In utilitarianism, if the suffering of a single child would benefit millions of other children, to enough of a degree, it actually would be the moral thing to do, according to some views in utilitarianism. Well, I think that at this point, you can assume that Mason is trying to adopt a Christian standard of morality to make this argument. I think what he's trying to do is use Christian morality to argue against Christianity. <clears throat> um, where that falls down is that he goes ahead and he makes the assumption that God exists for the benefit of people. Um, so the argument would go something like this. People uh, created God for their own benefit. God does not benefit people, therefore God does not exist. But it kind of assumes God's non-existence uh, to prove it. And the other way of looking at it is if God does exist and he created people, then people exist sort of as God's pets. Well, people exist for some purpose that ultimately leads back to God and his character. And, and that's where I would approach it from, because God is superior to people. Even if people of their own free will were to do everything that God wanted them to do, God would still be superior to people. And God is not beholden to that which he creates. It's not his responsibility 
to meet our needs and, and things. It's our responsibility to live up to the purpose for which he created us. Mm, very good. Now, this third premise that he has, to compensate a child for suffering, still makes the suffering itself purposeless and therefore immoral. That, to me, was the most problematic of the three statements that he made. It doesn't seem to me why that, you know, based on what one might mean by the word compensate, uh, it doesn't seem to me that actually that would necessarily imply purposelessness and therefore be immoral. I yeah, think. you'll see this happen a lot with uh, atheist arguments because, you know, I mean, they take a look at Christianity and from their perspective, Christianity states that, well, God can do whatever he wants to us here on earth because when we get to heaven, it'll all be better. And uh, they take that as God can abuse us and then hand us a sucker and that makes it okay. Um I think that, again, this is looking at getting the cart before the horse. It's it's looking at what can God do for us as opposed to what can God do to us, um, and that's not the purpose for which we exist. That, doesn't that argument kind of assume that God is somehow responsible to us rather than the other way around? Absolutely. God, God is beholden to us, and, and what happens to us um, is directly on his shoulders, um, because he exists to take care of it. Right. So you, in your paper, you go through a pretty systematic way of dealing with this issue. So let me give you free reign and just jump in and, and uh, tell us how we ought to approach uh, this kind of, of reasoning. Uh, sure, absolutely. I'm going to try my best to summarize what I wrote in the paper. Uh, the first thing I did was to take a look at his um, statements, and, and he brought up uh, fair treatment a lot. So I took a look at the uh, concept of fair treatment versus just treatment. Um, and on the one hand, fair, uh, justice means people getting what they deserve. So, for instance, if somebody does something bad, there should be a penalty for that. If somebody does something good, there should be a reward for that. Um, you know, the basic punishment and reward system, versus fairness, which is equal treatment for all people. Um, and to uh, take a look at the an illustration of this, I, I looked at one of Jesus' parables where he talks about uh, a vineyard owner who goes out and hires some people at the beginning of the day and agrees to pay them a day's wages, uh, which at the time was a one denarius. Um, then he goes out several more times during the day and hires more people on to work in his vineyard. And uh, when there was only an hour of daylight left, he goes out and hires more people who only worked an hour. Then he lines all the people up at the end of the day and he pays them all the same amount, the uh, denarius. Well, the people he hired first get upset because they assumed that since he was paying the people at the end of the day a denarius, that they would be paid more. Uh, so they start grumbling and he uh, says, look, I gave you exactly what I agreed for you. If I decided to pay these people who only worked an hour the same amount, that's my generosity towards them, and you can't tell me what to do with my own money. Um, and that's a great example of the difference between just treatment and fair treatment. The, the workers who were hired at the beginning were treated justly. Now, they weren't treated fairly because they, the people, each worker was not compensated for the amount of work he did. They were all paid uh, a full day's wages whether they worked a full day or not. But this does not indict the uh, vineyard owner of injustice. It was a, an example of his generosity, even if that generosity was not fairly meted out. Um, 
So, so it's really not at, it's really not a, a a matter of him cheating the people that started at the beginning of the day. It's the point is him being generous to the people that started later in the day. Absolutely, yeah. And what I said was that God can still be a good God and be generous to some people and not generous to others, as long as everyone gets just treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. So then I, uh, I I went down and I looked at the exam- why he uh, he always referenced the suffering child. Stephen Mason, at no point does he talk about a suffering adult. It's always a suffering child. And I assumed that he was doing that for one of two reasons, um, or maybe both reasons. Um, the first was an emotional appeal. A suffering child is always going to bring uh, more of an emotional effect than in a suffering adult. And the other was kind of and um, to avoid the, the discussion of uh, what you might call karmic retribution, uh, an adult might be suffering for something that they'd done uh, that was bad, but a child, I'm, a, I'm guessing Mason would assume a child wouldn't be responsible for their choices because of immaturity and because they're, uh, <clears throat> they're reliant on adults for uh, most of their decisions. Hmm. Um, so I had to look at the biblical text uh, about children and it's interesting that throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, children are held accountable for the decisions that they make. Um, there's direct commands to children to respect and obey their parents. Um, there are laws in the Mosaic Law that would prescribe up to the death penalty for children who were disobedient. Um, you have an instance in the uh, historical books where there was a prophet that was walking up to a town and a bunch of kids came out and started taunting him, and these bears came out of the woods and mauled the children. Um, you know, it, it seems like God does hold children accountable for the decisions they make. So you can't say that just because the person is a child, that therefore they should not be punished for wrongdoing. Um, and then I looked at the uh, idea that maybe a newborn or an unborn child would deserve special treatment. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting because everything I'm saying here, everything that I said in response to this paper, uh, is already summed up much better than I could do it in the book of Romans. Romans does a, a great job of talking about uh, suffering and evil. And in that book, uh, the Apostle Paul writes that Jacob and Esau were unborn in the womb. They had done not, neither bad nor good, and God esteemed Jacob over Esau. Um, and I argued that this was an example of God's generosity, not of injustice, because Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved any special treatment from God, um, but God chose Jacob over Esau uh, at that point, and it was his um, prerogative to do so. Um, I, don't, so anyway, I don't know exactly okay. in the New Testament where it is, but there's a verse where God himself says, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. In other yeah, words, actually, it's his that's, choice. That's, that's in direct reference to what I was just saying, um, and that was a quote from an Old Testament book, although I don't remember which one. Right. Well, um, at any rate, the next thing I took a look at was in that same passage in Romans. Um, in order to really define why people suffer, you have to deter- determine why people, the purpose for which God created people in the first place. And in the book of Romans, Paul makes the argument that the only way that God is responsible for giving us anything is if we were to somehow meet up to his standards. Uh, Paul says, for the one who works, it is considered his wages and not a gift. And then he goes on to say that nobody fulfills the law, so God does not owe anybody these uh, so-called wages. Um, and then it talks about what if God, willing, uh, wishing to show his righteousness, created for the same, out of the same 
uh, lump, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Um, and in, in that section, he defines the two types of people that, uh, that exist. You've got people that are ultimately going to reject God's uh, forgiveness that he offers and therefore be subject to the just um, uh, judgment that they receive. And those are the vessels of wrath. And it talks about God enduring them with much patience, which shows God's uh, mercy and, and, and patience, even uh, to these people who are ultimately going to be damned. And then you've got the vessels of mercy, which are those who will ultimately accept uh, the forgiveness that God uh, shows, which then illustrates God's uh, love and forgiveness, uh, the uh, positive aspects of God's being. Um, hmm. well, so then I want... Yeah, go ahead. Um, for people who are just joining us, let's let you know that you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Joel Furches, the director of Ratio Christi at Towson University in Maryland. And we're talking about the problem of suffering. So, Joel, you've been talking about several verses from the Bible to give us an idea of the Christian view of this issue of suffering and are people really uh, going to suffer justly or is it unjust that they suffer? So uh, keep going with your thought there. Uh, Sure. Um, The next point I made in the paper is that uh, you have to look at the fact that everyone died. I think this is probably the most ignored point when dealing with uh, with atheism's attacks on uh, Christianity for evil that occurs in the world. Um, so you'll have some kind of tragedy that occurs in the world, and, you know, they'll ask, well, why would God allow that to happen? Um, ultimately, everyone dies. So they're not attacking the, uh, the fact of death. They're, fa- they're attacking the timing and nature of the particular death. Right. Um, and ignoring the fact that everyone's going to die anyway. So if everyone's going to die, um, I already made this point earlier in our discussion, but atheism doesn't have a good claim to morality because anything an atheist does for somebody, assuming that atheism is true, doesn't ultimately benefit them or anyone, really, because that person will eventually die whether or not you help them and assist and relieve their suffering. And when they die, they cease to exist. So it's not like they're going to be grateful for the good that they received in life after they die. Eventually, that's where we're all going anyway. Um, And eventually, the human race will cease to exist, and then the universe will cease to exist, and then nothing anyone's ever done really matters. Right. So in other words, according to atheism, there's no point to any of it. (laughs) Well, and that's classic atheism for you. I mean, if you look at the writing of of the classic atheists, they all as much as admit that nihilism is the ultimate philosophy that you end up if you take uh, God away. Right, um, yeah. and, and any sort of spiritual uh, plane, because if we are all eternal beings, then <clears throat> there might be a purpose or a benefit for anything that happens to us. But if we're temporal beings, if we exist for a period of time and then we cease to exist, then nothing that really happens to us has any impact on anything, really. Yeah, the uh, as you said, the... Atheistic view doesn't make much sense, and they don't even have the position in which to make this argument about suffering. But as you said, they are trying to actually take the Christian view and turn it on itself and say, look, the Christian view of the problem of suffering doesn't make any sense, and therefore the Christian God doesn't exist. So that's why this issue about 
child suffering, when assumably they're meaning children before the age of accountability, so maybe a baby, an infant suffering. But I think the mistake they make, and tell me if this is where you go, you're going with in your argument, is in the view that God only compensates for what they suffered. So in a sense, it's kind of a zero-sum game where the child suffers and then is only brought back to a level of zero again. And so therefore, that's not fair. But let's say a, a, a one-year-old child dies of cancer. Is that really what happens? Is Does uh, God, um, assuming that God doesn't hold this child accountable for the sin of humanity and does actually reward him in heaven, as the Bible says, wiping away all tears and things, do we actually just get back to zero, or is it actually better because we've well, suffered? Is it actually? Well, I think that at least when I've heard this argument made by atheists, they will say that no matter what you know um, benefits occur to us after we die, no matter how good things are after we die, it doesn't justify God letting us suffer before we die, because all He's doing is saying sorry things were so bad, and then handing us a lollipop. Um, and, you know, hopefully this makes up for it. Um, the suffering would have to serve the benefit of the sufferer from their view. But again, their view is that God, that God is beholden in us, that we deserve a good life, and that when we don't receive it, when we're uncomfortable at all, then that discomfort impugns God's goodness. And it also assumes that we never deserve any suffering at all, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the uh, if you were to then make a, a case for... Uh, you know, the, the sinfulness or, or the imperfection of humanity, they would most likely jump to an argument that says, well, we're only imperfect because that's how we were made by God. So again, it's back on God's shoulders. You know, God makes us imperfect, unable to live up to his standards, and punishes us for doing. Let's talk about Maltzen's example, the illustration that he gives of a human creating another human. Yeah, um, Mason is basically at this point addressing an argument that, uh, I forget the name of the gentleman that he was getting that argument from, but uh, a, a Christian made the argument that God has the right to do with us as he pleases because uh, he is our benefactor and, and he ultimately made us. And then he says that to address that argument, he will provide an example of himself <coughs> creating a clone from one of his own skin cells. And then he takes the clone, and he raises the clone, and he cares for it, and he gives it a comfortable life. And then at some point, uh, say, age 10, he takes the clone out and beats him mercilessly, mercilessly till he dies in front of spectators. And he does so to illustrate to the spectators the evils of child. He says, in this instance, I've created the clone, I am its benefactor, um, and I've treated it well, and then its death served the purpose of serving as an illustration to those around to try to prevent evil uh, by preventing them from doing child abuse. He says, even in this instance, I've acted evilly because there's that per that clone was made to suffer um, unnecessarily or, or in a way that did not ultimately benefit the clone itself, um, and, and he concludes that this is evil. Um, now, again, I mean, he does so on an emotional basis. He doesn't give any reason for why it would be evil to do so, but he, he essentially says, it's apparent that what I've done is evil, and leaves it at that. 
Right, and I guess I would tend to agree with him that that does appear to be evil. However, um, it doesn't at all appear to be the situation that we are in vis-a-vis God. Um, I don't think – now, if you're going to change that scenario so that I create this individual – I raise them to, say, nine or ten years old, and then I use them as an um, example of the evil of child abuse by beating the person, this child, to death. And then I raise that child back to life and give them a billion dollars and make them forget about their pain. And uh, then that might be a little bit more like what – you know the the judgment day would be for those who have uh, suffered. Um, but even that's not quite an accurate example because God doesn't beat people to death. Yeah, he and I agree. He doesn't deliberately he allows, inflict suffering on people just because he wants to. And that's that issue of allow and make. So right. Um, but you know what? I I think that if I did that for that crowd, that audience. That the audience would see, oh, look, the person just got resurrected, nothing's wrong with them, and they got a billion dollars, sign me up. I want that. (laughs) Um, I think the kind of justice that God hands out is the kind of justice where all of us, whether guilty – well, all of us are guilty, but whether judged as guilty or judged as righteous under the covering of Jesus Christ, all of us – We'll look back at the suffering that we have had on our on earth uh, and say to God, let's do that again, right? I mean, they, we would all recognize that this actually was a good, that the, the purpose, and that goes back to that, what is the purpose of the universe? What is the purpose of people? So, Joel, we've got just three minutes left, so if, maybe you can answer that question from your paper, from your viewpoint. What is God's purpose for human beings? Well, yeah, and, and that's ultimately where, what it all boils down to. Um, if you look at the history of the universe, ultimately the only thing that matters is God. Every, he is the only non-contingent being. Everything that exists owes its existence to him, and he has defined and given the purpose to everything that exists. More than that, though, he is the definition, his very nature is the definition of good or evil. So whatever God does, by definition, must be good. So why is it all there? Why did God uh, create it in the first place? I would argue that God, that God, in order to exist, God must act. If God sits in a static state and does nothing, it's the same as not existing. So I believe that creation was probably necessary uh, simply to God. And what is the point of creation? It's to express and explore his own nature. There are two sides to God's nature that are manifest in creation. The one is his justice and his holiness, um, and the other is his love, forgiveness, and mercy. Now, if there's no, if there's nothing outside of his will, if nobody acts in any way that's different than what his will is, then he can't display his justice, he can't display his mercy. Those things don't exist, or, or at least they're not manifest, unless there's something to judge and there's something to be merciful to. So by allowing a creation and allowing free will within that creation, God has created a scenario wherein his own nature can be displayed both in his justice and in his mercy. And at the end of everything, the people who have enacted this, the people who were responsible for revealing God's um, 
justice and his mercy, have contributed to the only eternal thing that matters, that is the manifestation of God's nature. Yeah, and I think that is a wonderful answer, really, really good. Joel, thank you for being a guest on Evidence for Faith. Can you tell us a website or where can people email you or read your stuff? Uh, most of my freelance writing is done for the examiner, and it's a really long address, but I'll try to give it to you. It's www.examiner.com forward slash Christianity dash in dash Baltimore forward slash Joel dash Purchase. And then I also write for BibleTranslation.net. That's Bible-Translation.net. Joel, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,